A little warning, most of our episodes are for adult ears only with frequent droppage of the F-bomb. And as a heads up, we talk about sexual assault and sexual violence throughout this episode. I'm Roisin Bevan. And I'm Daisy Grant. And this is Harness. Since Harness was released a couple of months ago, we've been working on a few bonus episodes. We were so blown away by the response to Harness. We were fascinated to see what different themes resonated with people and we're really, really grateful for staying with us throughout the episodes. We just felt like we just wanted to round it off with a little bit more spice. For this episode, we interviewed Clementine Ford again, which was so exciting for the both of us. When we first interviewed her, well, her book hadn't come out in the UK yet, uh, Boys Will Be Boys, which is about toxic masculinity and the patriarchy. As soon as it came out, Roisin and I both grabbed it and we were so overwhelmed by it. It was beautifully written, so funny, so intense. It made my holiday reading very serious. But I appreciated that. When she was in London, we absolutely jumped at the opportunity to have a second interview with her. We got her down to the studio. She'd come down from the countryside. We had some mimosas. We had some pastries. It was so delightful and so amazing to have met her in person. Like, I felt it was Mm. like such an honor. It was so nice to meet her. Yeah, and we were able to just delve into some of the themes of the book a little bit more closely. And it is a gorgeous read for, I mean, at, at points it is heavy, but as we say in in the first episode and again when we're interviewing her, she has a way with words and she has uh, an ability to bring a lot of humour to some really dark shit. Mm. And uh, the book is really for everyone, you know, and I think men shouldn't be put off reading this book because they're like, I'm just going to get told off. Jesus, no, it's about how it works, how toxic masculinity works against men and how we should all be avoiding that strain of masculinity. Yeah, but we we spoke about lots of other things as well and, and we had a general gas bag about her time in London and the things she's been up to and and it was really, really great. And then we had a lovely journey home with her and she's she's very chilled and, and has a great sense of humour and, and it was a joy to interview her again. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Go out and buy her book. 100%. It's fantastic. It's so good. If you haven't read Fight Like a Girl then that's another 2020 goal. We definitely touch on a bit of porn. Mm. We don't watch it together, but... I kind of wish we did. We talk about porn. We, we spoke about Justin Trudeau as well and forgiveness because at the time there were pictures of him found wearing blackface. So we talked about that because that was in the news at the time. It was early October that we interviewed her. And yeah, it was just mm. a really nice interview really enjoyed it and it was the first one back after the first series and what a way to go enjoy enjoy clementine ford thank you so much for being with us today it is my absolute pleasure and thrill to be here well we promised to the pooples that we would come back for a part two but we we didn't expect you to come to us so we're very very i flew here just for this yes thank you we are very important (laughs) we are very busy and important and you know we managed to squeeze you in but it was a bit of a stretch to be honest sorry that's what she said (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i love it (laughs) how's london it's it's amazing to be here, you know. How's London? I haven't been here for 10 years. It's great. Um, it's, really? <laughs> yeah, it's been 10 years. I just got back from East Sussex this morning, popped off the train. It's exciting. Um, it's yeah, it was nice beautiful down there. I lo- you, know what I, you know what I love? I mean, Roisin, you're from Australia, so and Daisy, you've lived in Australia. Everything in Australia is so fucking far away from everything else. It's true, yeah. You know, whereas here it's like... Oh, my train, babes. Yeah, my friend was like, oh, thank you so much for coming all the way down here. I was like, it's an hour on the train. Yeah, you get really used to things being so close because then when you go home, it's it's weird mm. to have to jump in a car and even to the shops. I find myself getting so lazy when I go back to Australia because I will drive everywhere. everywhere. I'm Two minutes to the shops, I'm there. of being able to drive anywhere because I'm like living in London. There is no way I'm ever going to get mm. a car. Why would I? But aren't you a terrible driver? <laughs> Yeah, but you're a woman. Women drive. Oh, yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> women yeah. can't drive. <laughs> if women were good drivers, why aren't any of them taxi drivers? <gasps> it's a very good it's point. It's a great point. It's um, a great point. It's a very good point, Clementine Ford. And <laughs> <laughs> Have you been picking up on some of the 
politics in England. I mean, I know well, Boris that is you're blonde. A, uh, yeah, all of the tabloid headlines. <laughs> Boris is blonde. <laughs> yes, Boris. She has a name. Uh, Jennifer. Is it Arcuri? Oh, she's the one. Jennifer Arcuri. Oh, the one that he's like been sending money to. I thought you meant his partner, but hang on. What? 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 So he it's a scandal. It's a scandal in the, in the news. Escalando. Please tell me. Escalando. When he was mayor, mm. um, this American entrepreneur has apparently tricked him into giving. Well, you know, supposedly. What's her name? Him into giving him money. Jennifer, Jennifer Arcuri. Oh. Arcuri. And it's just a big scandal at the moment. But literally, nothing's going to defeat him. He was in the mm. Supreme Court. He was deemed that he broke the law. Oh God! By proroguing Parliament, and he's still there and still saying. Do you know this is just one of the? We're going to come out of Brexit. Uh, sort of struggling with this as well but this is one of the overwhelming outrages that I kind of like pulses through me at the moment and it's just that these guys just keep getting away with everything yeah literally everything everything Everything. like Trump standing there having clearly broken the law yeah again and again Mm. and boasted about it and standing Mm. there and and, you know now I see the White House the official Facebook page of the White House is releasing memes denigrating the democrats and it's so weird that to me that now this one thing that he did which was called the ukrainian president wasn't it about um look at me i know about current affairs um (laughs) uh, to kind of get get back at joe biden and it's like why is that the one thing yeah that is making people want to impeach him well because i I think it's because that's the one thing that they've got actual Tangible, evidence of yeah. and mm. and so what so like he, 20 women coming so, forward isn't yeah the phone conversation evidence the phone conversation with the ukrainian leader was i think that trump said that he wouldn't cease giving funding to ukraine basically mm. but in exchange ukraine had to investigate joe biden and his son and there's mm. you know actual phone conversation evidence it was of that, said yeah as yeah, far yeah. as i'm mm. aware and this is that's colluding with a foreign power and he knows that to he can't... influence an election yeah which like... is what of course what he did in 2016 yeah, yeah, yeah. but just something you said before was you were still so angry and one of my favorite lines from your book which we will talk about is when or, or sections of your book is when you just laid out so clearly um cory bernardi and your mm. you described your visceral anger um about him trying to take down a primary school like because he's so hardcore yeah, so uh, to this. take down a primary school and their mm. fundraising which happened to be around the time of the gay marriage uh, postal vote in Australia um, and I went home and I kept saying to her I, I just love the way she says she's viscerally angry like I'm fucking angry all in my body and I'm also not going to soften that or dampen that anger for you or for anyone yeah it was like seeping out of my pores it still is when I think about these you know because we're also told I sort of talk about this in another chapter in the book as well when um, I look at pop culture and the the stories that we learn to aspire to and valorize you know like the hero quest Mm. and all of pop culture is about asking viewers to align themselves with heroes defeating baddies Mm -hmm. and the same, the very same people who are propping up these oppressive regimes and and you know completely ignoring the illegalities being perpetrated by you know prominent world leaders mm. are the same ones who would say like, yeah, I I I align myself with a hero. I identify with the hero. Yes, yes. You're like, no, you're the stormtroopers. Yes. Mm. You guys are the ones who are just doing what the Empire tells you to do. Mm. And when you think about that rage, I think, comes from a place of, comes from like a naive childishness in me where I still hold on strongly to the lessons that I learned as a child, which is that good will good will always prevail that the yeah. bad guys will lose that if you just work hard enough and you fight hard enough and you are a good enough moral enough person then you will be able to succeed in the end and it's just not fucking true that reminds me of in your book where you talk about um milo yiannopoulos sorry shouldn't have brought up his name anyway. no but isn't it good that most people now have forgotten who he is yeah so yeah, let's yeah, yeah. Milo yiannopoulos everyone remember that he's an evil <laughs> master um and when you were talking about why there's certain battles that you won't Fight, yes, right? this is and amazing. And you quoted um, Laurie Penny, who said that she won't publicly debate him, uh, not because she's frightened that she'll lose, but because she knows she'll lose, because I care and he doesn't, mm. and that means that he's already won. And that like was like a, such a gut punch mm. 
to me because when you were saying about all that just now about all the anger coming out through your pores that's what I feel when I'm thinking mm. about like the patriarchy and how angry it makes me and I can't do anything about it and it's exhausting and you're on Facebook like commenting to people and you're fucking well to me my uncle is like commenting on one thing and I'm like no you don't understand and I try and explain it and he's never gonna get it and he's just like oh you're a bloody lefty scam um it's just because I can't win because they don't fucking mm. care yeah and I care so much and I was like oh my god that's just that's just really clicked for me that mm. that's why I've I remove myself from these conversations not because I'm weak or not because I think I'm, I'm incapable of winning mm. but because I just know there's no point but then you say as well, well you can't win you know well because they're not coming to the conversation in good faith mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know if someone came to me and said I genuinely and if I believed them I genuinely genuinely want to have a discussion about our differences and see if we can find some common ground I may still decide no that is not an effective use of my time mm -hmm. um and certainly if you're not planning to pay me for it you know because you know what I've written two books that you can go and read I've written a ton of articles that you can go and read so many other people have written stuff so why don't you go and read all of that mm. come up with a list of conversation points and then come back and see if I'm interested in having this conversation have but you ever had one of those conversations um not in exactly that way but I have had discussions with men who've at least bothered to read my work yeah mm. you know the ones that frustrate me are the ones who come to me and they say why won't you have a conversation with me you're out there claiming to you know you have all of these views and, and opinions but you can't even back it up you can't even explain to me what you think and it's like this is something that that all marginalized people especially mm. and and in this particular situation women need to really come to grips with and that is that we can say you are not entitled to my time i've already put in like countless hours of work into establishing a body of work and and an argument here that you that is accessible to yeah. you like if yeah. you can't afford to buy the books go to the library you mm, know yeah, read the there. articles online mm -hmm. it is not my job for you because you want to ignore all of that and just have a quote unquote debate with me yeah it's not my job to sit here and and talk to you and then you turn around at the end and say well she couldn't she wouldn't even debate me that means that she can't back her opinions up I've got hundreds of thousands of fucking words yeah, of course, to back of it course. up yeah. you can't back up any effort you know mm -hmm. that's the point yeah and that as well in your book the sheer amount of examples that were in there of men just taking the fucking mm. piss and women getting walked all over it was just it i couldn't i couldn't fathom it for and people it was, was sorry it's like, just in one book you know, for people who aren't watching, by the way, the sound of us sort of like tinkering around. We don't have um, cat collars on us. We're pouring prosecco into glasses we and eating our croissants. <laughs> I like the ends of the croissants. Oh, the little knobby ends. Yeah. Take <laughs> Clementine Ford is currently the, eating a knobby uh, end for breakfast. New, new quote: uh, Clementine Ford <laughs> likes the knobby ends. <laughs> Welcome everyone. I feel like you've had a little bit of a surge of trolls or there's been a few notable ones recently which have made it onto your feed and I always find it interesting um, when people sort of attack or criticize especially women for feeding the trolls mm. and I just ignore them and just again, ignore putting them. the blame on women yeah and it kind of is why very... are you giving them a platform yeah what <laughs> yeah I mean that must get said to you all the time oh yeah and the thing that really annoys me is you know no disrespect well, a little bit of disrespect to the people who say this, but I don't think that they're intentionally trying to be annoying. But when people whose job might be they're an office worker or they're a nurse or whatever, the point being that their job is not like having it's just a their face their on the uncle internet. who's having yeah. a go at them. It's not like <laughs> yeah, and they say things 100, like just ignore the trolls. That's what I do. It's like how many trolls like, do you mm, get? Okay, yeah, yeah, just all right, great. I'll just do what you do, and that'll totally if work. You, if you engage, like. I mean, you engage enough and credit to you, but like if you engage more with the trolls, it's like that would be more than a full time job because mm. of the shit. I imagine the sheer amount of. But also, can it, doesn't, shit you it doesn't take into account. It doesn't take into account actually that you ignore 98% of them. Mm. You know, you choose mm. to make an example of one or two, mm -hmm. mm. basically just to show people you don't have to put up with this. Mm. And also to put a face on the reality for anyone who's like, oh, she just. 
this isn't true. Women, no one speaks to women like this. This isn't, un, this is unrealistic, blah, blah, blah. You're like, actually, this person has a wife and children mm. and he's just told me that I should kill myself yeah, or yeah. described to me how I should be raped. Yeah. Um, so just ignore them. Why? Why yeah. should we just ignore them? It is, again, like going back to that kind of hero quest mm. story and like how strongly held onto it is in, in our culture. It's really interesting that on the one hand we have this like idealised version of standing up to injustice and on the other hand people are so willing to just be like, just ignore it. Yeah. yeah just yeah, ignore yeah. it and it'll go away. How do you how do you cope with it and how do you not throw your phone out of a window or burn your laptop? Honestly, it really doesn't bother me because mm. the ones that I just ignore, I just ignore and I, I see them and they just go immediately out of my mind. Like I've got more important That's things amazing. to worry about. Yeah. Are well, you like it's just you get so used to it, you know. Desensitized so from almost. It's a, I guess it's a bit like if you work in the medical profession and you get yeah. used to blood, yeah, yeah. you know, or you yeah. get sure. used to seeing, you know, pus all the time. I mean, that's what you're seeing. <laughs> well, you're like, they, yeah. seeing the yeah. pus that of the internet. That's such a good description. You kind of just get yeah. used to sort of like ignoring it. The first few times you're like, oh, yuck, the pus touched me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I don't mind touching the But then the eventually you're like, yeah, I can, I'll change that bedpan. It's fine. Oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do yeah. it. And I just feel like it's like that. And then occasionally you might get a good story that you're like, you tell your friends, oh, you'll never guess the pus that I had to change today. Yeah. <laughs> it sort of feels a bit like that. So honestly, I see it. It's it's not a case of like how do you deal with it at all. It's 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 just tedious more than anything. Yeah, and do you ever feel like some of the threats of actual violence against you are they all empty threats, or do you ever feel like your personal safety is at risk? I don't, but I also always have at the back of my mind that you know, of all the people who send you threats, probably none of them will ever follow through on them. Mm. But all it takes is one person who is angry enough and, you know, consumed enough by their own rage and sense that you're the reason that their life is the way that it is. Mm. All it takes is that person to decide to do something to make an example of you or someone who's never messaged you before in their life but has observed all of this stuff or or thinks that, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. maybe their wife left them because they read something that I wrote and they're like, or maybe their wife left them because they just generally had an awareness of, feminism or because so they, they just, just left them and, yeah. was, and the guy's like those <laughs> fucking feminists they've ruined my family it's their fault I'm gonna go and ruin their their life you know yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. I don't actually live in fear of that at all but mm. I, I guess I'm just sort of conscious that it's always a possibility, mm. you know. Mm. But I suppose that's as... It's always as, a possibility for any woman. Exactly. Yeah, that's absolutely. what I was just going to say, as you so kind of explicitly say in your book, you know, you might not personally be a threat to me, but men are a threat to me. And that's what guys don't understand. Whenever they sort of like insist that you kind of excuse them from the conversation at the outset by saying not all men or acknowledging that they would never do that, they're a good man, or how dare you, you know, 99.99999% of men are good, decent men, they would never, ever hurt a woman. Firstly, that's not true. Um, whether or not they would hurt a woman in the most extreme way that we understand, mm. sure, that might be a minority of men. But men hurt women every day mm -hmm. in lots of different ways and sometimes they hurt them just by ignoring what other men are doing to them. The idea that you need to excuse men from the outset when they they are, they are not asking even nicely, but they're demanding that you acknowledge their existence and you acknowledge their life and you acknowledge their motivations. When they take zero time or effort to even think with any remote scrap of curiosity about women's lives, to mm. even ask them questions, can you tell me genuinely why it is you're afraid of, of men and I will sit here and listen with an open heart? Mm. Because if they were to do that, they would understand that being generally afraid of men is not about them as an individual at all, but that they they must be included in that generalisation because we just don't know where the threat comes from. And how, imagine, how are we supposed to know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Imagine being asked that question. Like, I, I mean, I've certainly in my life never had a man sit me down and say, how do I make women feel more safe? And I think most women, you know, would be so open to having that conversation, not that we need to give you the step-by-step -step guide, mm. but actually... It's like the defensiveness is so up that you never get to any kind and of any conversation. Could, and any woman could tell you. It's a universal experience. That's just a fact. Mm. Well, the thing is, in this age, you don't even need to actually sit down a woman and make her tell you those things. You mm -hmm. just need to Google it. Mm -hmm. Why are women afraid of men? <laughs> yeah. 
and they would find stuff to read. And then they yeah. could, then again, them. they could come back to that thing of like, I've read yeah. all this. This is some talking points that I want to cover. I'm going to go and speak to a trusted female friend about this and ask her, would you mind having this conversation with me? And at any point when, if you get over it, that's yeah. fine. We can stop. I wrote down another quote from your book. Like everything. I'm just like, it's my it's my new Bible. <laughs> and you said, women don't need to be told to look for the goodness in men because we try our damnedest to find it every day. For our own survival, women must believe that not all men are the enemy. No, not all men are a threat to women, but we know that any man could be. Mm. And that right there is the difference. Yeah. And I was like, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just you're so good at hitting the nail on the head with so many Thank things. You. And just honestly, as the in the same with uh, same with fight like a girl. This book, what I loved about it, apart from just being, I mean, it is fucking crushing sometimes, particularly when you get to the end and that kind of list of men um, in the public eye who the kind of um, accusations against them. Yeah. So um, just just quickly on, on the background for people listening. So that chapter is it's the penultimate chapter of the book, and it's called Witch Hunt, and it opens with you know, a story about Donald Trump responding to a senior aide of the White House who eventually, after a really long time of them knowing that he had a history of domestic violence, finally being forced to resign. And then Donald Trump saying, you know, he did a really good job while he was here and, you know, we'll be sad to see him go. And having also said, you know, it's a really, really scary time to be a man. Allegations, they just get thrown out and it just destroys a man's career. And then the chapter is just after that, just a glossary of dozens and dozens of prominent famous men, some of whom have even been convicted of, you know, violence rape against and, women, yeah. rape and sexual assault, whose careers are very much not destroyed. Absolutely. Mm. It's, it's quite shocking when you see it all laid out. I wanted to talk a little bit about second chances, kind of this... If, these conversations that we're having now, these changes, and there's been a, a huge change, which must have been interesting across your career in the last five to 10 mm. years, especially. I suppose in light of Justin Trudeau and his blackface scandal, I was thinking about selective forgiveness and allowing people to grow over time. And I just wanted your thoughts on when things are brought up that someone has done 10, 20, 30 years ago, what a response are we looking for from that person in order to move forward if there is such a thing? Mm. Well, I guess I'll say that I am not in any place at all to comment on how people choose to uh, forgive or not forgive Justin Trudeau for his multiple instances of blackface. You can't remember how many. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's important to acknowledge that he would be far from the only person guilty of that. So I don't feel comfortable commenting on that example in particular because particularly Indigenous people who live in the colonised country of Canada, the first and foremost people who are able to speak to that, I, I would say. Speaking to my own past mistakes, there's no date in history where I stopped making mistakes. I continue to make them every day and some big, some small. And hopefully I'm able to kind of listen when people call me out on it. You know, there've been times when I've fucked up and it wasn't conscious, but I've had to really figure out how do I make that right? Mm. You know, and it's not, it's not something that necessarily gets gets made right mm. and it's not something that people necessarily have an obligation to forgive you for just because you said you were sorry. I think that's a really good point what you've just said. You mm. know, if you are genuinely sorry, then you won't be angry if people aren't ready to accept your apology. And if they're never ready. It feels like a really hard thing to do, but that's because hard for privileged people is pretty basic. <laughs> it's definitely not harder to do that than it is to deal with Mm. micro and macro aggressions. Mm. On the other hand, no matter what our priorities are and what our main focus on in terms of cultural change is, if we are invested in the mass global cultural project of change and creating a better society and a better community of people, emerging from a very recent history where, you know, and, and a current history, of course, like, things like racism and sexism and transphobia and homophobia, all those things are still currently very much in play. But the education that we've had because of the the hard work being done by and the trauma being experienced by people working in those spaces, and they've still generously continued to educate, what we can learn from those things means that we are always progressing towards, hopefully, a better future. 
And there's no point in taking on that labor and also taking on that trauma if at the same time other people are going to say, well, no one is allowed to learn. Mm. No one is allowed to grow and be different because what is the what's the point of all that pain then, mm. you know, if we mm. don't allow for people to change? And, yeah, it's complicated because then I go back yeah. to the idea that, like, well, it's up to the people being affected and targeted to decide whether or not they will they will accept that change has occurred. Yeah. Um, I think it's really complicated. And I'm only speaking for myself. Like I, I know my own hypocrisy sometimes about how quick I am to forgive someone whose political side that I am on and, you know, I would never make excuses for other people's behaviour and I can see myself instinctively doing it before I actually mm. question myself and that kind of idea of forgiving people when it suits you. Mainly also I found Justin Trudeau really attractive. So that's really, really <laughs> fucked things up. I think lot. I was helped by the fact that he was just not my type at all. Great, great. <laughs> you know, Justin Trudeau isn't the only example of self-stylized, progressive, conventionally attractive white exactly. man in a position of power and privilege who's able to sort of, who has been able to kind of parlay himself into a position of authority and power mm. based on a very, very minimal superficial nod to I'm a progressive person. Yeah. And yet I feel conflicted because I'm like, if he is promoting progressive values, they, a lot of it is empty, I guess, because he's made a lot of really bad decisions that have affected indigenous people and that's that's fucked. If he's promoting progressive values over fucking far right shit, and that's what he's getting popular for. I may be a little bit more okay with it. I don't know. I feel I I feel yeah, very conflicted. Just... I'm not saying that I, I and I'm absolutely not excusing what he's been what mm. he's been doing because I think he's. But, it but I think it's worth remembering that within all of this, white supremacy and patriarchy is still at play. Mm -hmm. So Justin Trudeau might be superficially better than a far right fascist. Yeah, probably slightly more than superficially better. I guess, like <laughs> you know. Well, well realistically, right. realistically speaking, and yet the baseline is still which is the the best of a bad bunch of white men that we can find to lead a country. Exactly. As opposed to yeah, yeah, yeah. why why does this mediocrity mm. still get a platform? Like, yeah. where are the amazing indigenous women in Canada who Absolutely. could be leading the country? Yeah. So. I mean, you can kind of like take a pragmatic view of like, oh, well, we want the best of two bad people. But actually, we should we should be striving for better mm. than that, you know. Mm. That's a really good and point. And something like, like this incident should open up a necessary can of worms to actually try and dig a little bit deeper and, and think about the roots of it. There was some figures, some statistic, which probably came out about two weeks ago, which was released by the Crown Prosecution in the UK, and I'm not sure what the latest figures are in Australia, showing that the convictions for rape have fallen to their lowest levels in more than a decade despite a huge influx in reported rapes despite the witch hunt yeah and it's a terrifying um, time to be a young man in oh the absolutely today. terrifying a young white man <laughs> i just found it fascinating this kind of disparity we have between a larger number of women and girls uh, especially are coming forward to report instances of sexual abuse but we're not actually able to prosecute people and where are we falling short? Well, we are able to prosecute people. It's just whether or not the police decide that they want to prosecute mm. people. Mm. You know, a study just recently came out in Australia saying that 40% of Australians think that women lie about sexual assault, which all the people, when I saw this linked on Facebook, all of the people in the comments were like, I'm just flabbergasted by this. I just cannot believe this. And I'm like, I'm surprised it's not higher, to be honest. I yeah. Agree. I, agree. I think that it is higher and people lied. Mm. <laughs> Was the irony in that. I think that they don't want to believe that sexual assault is perpetrated by men that they know. Mm. And most women who are reporting sexual assault aren't saying I was raped when I walked home through an alleyway Alley man. We have by to talk a stranger. about unbelievable. Yes. Oh, you wrote a brilliant so article about it. It's so good. It's so amazing. Why didn't thank you for those nice this. words, Rasheen. It is an amazing, <laughs> amazing series. Um, I loved it. And, I mean, as much as you, you know, you're like, I love that show about horrible <laughs> rape. They managed to just pack so much in. Female friendship, being a leader of a team as a woman. I, I loved as well that nothing was so black and white. It wasn't making a murderer where it was, you're framed, man. Like, we got you. And it was so binary in terms of the police versus the victims. Like, you could... 
you could understand how the the detectives and how the foster mothers had come to the conclusions in their own way. Well, just to give anyone who's not watched Unbelievable or heard of it a background, and you should watch it. So it's based on a Pulitzer Prize winning um, article in ProPublica that appeared in 2015 about the bungled prosecution of a rape investigation involving a young woman who had who'd had quite a rough upbringing you know she she'd been through the foster system so she was already marginalized by the system she reported that a man had broken into her assisted living facility and raped her using her own knife and her own shoelaces to tie her up and there was very little evidence at the scene. And he was masked. He was masked. And he took photographs of her. And he took photographs of her. And she had a very, like, comprehensive statement. And then her experience with the police was, sadly, that of, you know, all too many, a majority of rape survivors, which is that she was forced to retell and retell her story over and over again. She was met with resistance, met with doubt. Her, you know, former foster parents expressed... The belief to the police that she was lying. Who, if the if the series is accurate, had both experienced sexual assault themselves, which I thought was very interesting. I mean, yeah, but who, but it, but it very cleverly kind of like showed that their responses were different because exactly. everyone has a different response. Yeah, to and, but that trauma. they were ignorant to even yeah. even having experienced themselves that they were ignorant to the possibility. You know, the and she was kind of painted as having been an attention seeker because of mm. her traumatic background. Anyway, then the show kind of like intersperses uh, a few years into the future with a you know a few states away even from where this had happened with a rape investigation being carried out this by, time by two female detectives. And this is all based on a real true story. So anyone who may be inclined to be like, oh, well, of course they tried to make it seem like the women handled it better. Because, of course, like there are lots of there are lots of female investigators that are just as capable yes, of yeah. instituting no, rape fiction. culture and, and, <laughs> and, you know, like maintaining and holding up rape culture as there are of course, dudes. Yeah. But it just, the way that the show really excelled was in showing the stark difference between these two approaches to the investigation, the care that the female detectives take, not just in dealing with the women who are reporting, but also in in really working to try and find this person who's perpetrating these rapes. And so the, that's that, that's as many spoilers yeah. as I'll give. But it, it's so brilliantly done and, and it's so such an important representation of survivors in a way that I've certainly not seen before. Yes, and it's also a really good insight into, you know, when people talk about false rape, statistics oh well false rape she should be imprisoned for you know filing a false rape charge we know that the statistics on the false reporting of sexual assault are roughly the same as false reports that occur for any other crime which is roughly between two to eight percent except that with sexual assault you have to take in a whole raft of other issues that are not present when it comes to the false reporting of other crimes and that is that it's you know really up to the discretion of the investigating police officers whether or not they decide to pursue charges mm. and if they decide not to pursue charges that will be classified as a false mm. report mm. Oh! if they decide that um if the woman who's filed the report then at some point feels like you know what this is actually too traumatizing for me or she's yeah. coerced in the way that um marie in this show was coerced mm. by the police officers to withdraw her complaint mm. that will also be filed as a false report oh my so God. there's all of these there's all of these reports and that will go into that two to eight percent well that would be classified i mean and also um i, I know, wasn't aware of that that's so kate harding who is uh, an incredible american academic who wrote a book in 2015 called asking for it the alarming rise of rape culture and what we can do about it she talks about false rape reports and she says, I'm going to quote from my book here, the primary evidence used by MRAs here, men's rights activists, is a small and highly questionable study from 1994 in which researcher Eugene J. Cannon inve investigated 104 sexual assault complaints made to a small Midwestern police station between 1978 and 1987. According to Cannon, 41% of these allegations turned out to be false. And so then, like, you hear that and you're like, well, of course, that's a compelling statistic. So people, that is where MRAs get their information from. Sure. If they're even bothered to research, it's like, oh, well, almost half of almost half of all sexual assault allegations are false. But it's a four-decade-old study. And also um, 
The problem with the study is that determining that duplicity has occurred is both difficult and extremely flawed. And so then in 2009, an academic called David Lisak co-authored a report for the National Centre for Prosecution of Violence Against Women, and he looked in part at the difficulties inherent in defining what a a false report even is. And at the time, he wrote... Cannon's 1994 article on false allegations is a provocative opinion piece, but it is not a scientific study of the issue of false reporting of rape. It certainly should never be used to assert a scientific foundation for the frequency of false allegations. And he also argued that Cannon's study failed to question the police methods used to assess the veracity of sexual assault allegations in that small Midwestern town, or even the attitudes of the town, you know, Mm -hmm. like mid-70s in a Midwestern town, the attitudes that people had about sexual assault. Um, and he said that any potential biases were then echoed in Cannon's unchallenged reporting of their findings. And so basically I concluded, me personally, Clementine Ford, concluded that it's scientifically unsound to use as a control group a selection of people who history and sociology inform us are unlikely to be impartial when it comes to judging whether or not a woman is telling the truth about her own rape. Basically, that if you're asking an entirely male-manned, sheriff's station in a tiny little town to be the determiners of whether or not women lie about rape you're kind of operating from a pretty flawed premise in the beginning one of the things that i think really troubles the situation and troubles dialogue around it is that most people and by that i mean most men who have a very strong opinion on rape and how women report it and how women even define it don't actually understand that sexual assault and rape on paper, is pretty banal. And I don't mean to say it's banal in that it doesn't cause really significant trauma, but that because the only way that a lot of these men deciding what rape is have ever experienced rape in their minds is through watching it on television, which is always like a highly stylized, titillating representation of it. And that's another thing that Unbelievable did really well is that the way that they presented the rape was through her Yes. Recollections as opposed to the camera watching a man rape her. And you might find when you watch it, my experience was like, God, this is hard to watch. But you see rape a lot, represented a lot in on screen. But then it dawns on you, actually, that's because it's not represented in this way. It is Mm. this kind of glossy, if there is such a way of representing rape, but it is this kind of glossy. There's an element of, of, there's an element of the filmmaker wanting the moviegoer to be a little bit turned on. Still a bit sexy. And that's really fucked up. It's really fucked up. Yeah. In- so, so then, like, men who are deciding whether or not women lie don't want to hear about the times that you're lying in bed with your boyfriend and he just keeps pushing until the no becomes a yes or, you know, mm. the just the sort of the banality of it, you mm. know. Mm. And the fact that it can be over really, really quickly. Like yeah. that something that can fundamentally change your life can... Take 90 seconds. I feel like I shouldn't bring this up, but I'm gonna. Um, have you, did you read Jermaine Greer's essay on rape? She did a, she did one called On Anger and then On Rape. I didn't, I've, I know the essay, but I haven't read it. I haven't read it fully either, full disclosure. And obviously Jermaine is problematic in a multitude of ways or has done some problematic things but one of the sections that I did read which I found interesting as she was speaking as a survivor of rape herself was about how we need to reframe this idea that rape or sexual assault is hugely traumatizing um, a thing to occur to women because it actually is banal in the sense of it occurs all the time mm. and that actually if we were a little bit more realistic about how regular it is and how common it is, you know, it is as common as a as robbery. It's not as common as murder. And if we started to think about it a little bit more like that, that, that we might end up getting more prosecutions. That was something that kind of it made me think. Well, her her whole argument I think is that I haven't read the essay but, but based on previous writings mm. that – we would more successfully prosecute rape if we prosecuted it in the civil courts as opposed to the criminal courts. Yes, and and to be honest, I actually agree with that on some level because, and we were talking about this before, I think there is something so inherently flawed, and I think I mentioned the last time we interviewed you that around the time of the rugby Ulster Boys Mm. um, trial, I was in Ireland and I spent some time in the victim support unit 
in uh, Dublin's largest court. The most amount of cases were sexual assault and most of them were the victims mm. or survivors were girls and women. No surprise. And there's something inherently flawed about asking 12 strangers to decide that there is no reasonable doubt. One of the other complicating factors about that is that people don't want to send young white boys in particular mm. to jail for what they perceive to be a quote-unquote mistake, mm. you know. So even if in on a jury of 12 of your peers, mm. even if there was any sense that like, well, maybe something did happen, maybe he did do this, I think that oftentimes they want to believe that unless the parameters of the case fit what they're comfortable with defining sexual assault as and the perpetrators of sexual assault, that there's a, a big part of them that shows empathy that they don't show for any other crime where they say, well, this probably did happen, but he probably didn't know exactly what he was doing and he shouldn't have to go to jail for it. And I think that that's a huge problem, you know. Yeah. And then it's complicated further by the fact that like, I do think that people who sexually assault women should be punished to the full extent of the law because it's a serious crime. And yet jail is a really fucked up concept. Yeah, 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 of you course. Know? Yeah. Does jail actually help rehabilitate? Anyone? I don't think don't so. Know. Going back to what Jermaine was saying about prosecuting in the civil court, perhaps if it was a judge's, a single judge's decision, of course there are going to be anomalies in the among judges who are completely biased towards one way of thinking and are inherently sexist and misogynist and they're going to mm. think that a woman is lying. But I think the chances of that would be, I don't know, I haven't done a study, but would be, my gut tells me they'd be less than yeah. The likelihood of bringing together twelve people who understand the nuances of rape culture and the patriarchy—it's like it's hard enough. Mm. Uh, like mm. I struggle enough with it as someone who's like a liberal mm. feminist. I I find it difficult to wrap my head around sometimes. So it's like, but maybe we would get more convictions if if it was uh, judges who were deciding the outcomes mm. and they could weigh up the balance mm. of probabilities in their kind of training and expertise rather than uh, general pickings from society. Yeah, and I mean, in the same sense that it's up to people to decide whether or not, you know, going back to the Justin Trudeau thing, it's up to people affected directly by that to decide what they think the appropriate mm. punishment should be for that behaviour. So I say that because I can't, I can't really speak to what I think would be the appropriate punishment because I have very fortunately never been raped. It's always a possibility, you mm. know. So I, do, I speak from a theoretical place, but I wonder if... There is, you know, having spoken obviously to numerous survivors in my life, if you prosecuted through the civil courts, as unsatisfying as that might be in the punitive sort of like yeah. society that we live in, and I do understand that, would there also be some closure or some some something possible from being able to see that you're the person who has done this terrible thing to you has to stand up and own it. So again, like Jermaine Greer has some very problematic thoughts in a modern mm. world, but one of the things that I find compelling about her argument is that if, if that ownership has to be taken over the crime and what has been done to mm. someone, then that can, that could potentially be more helpful in the long run than having someone going to jail or not going to jail, but always having them deny what they did. Mm. You know, to know that they've had to admit it, to stand up in front of people and say, I did this thing mm. to this person and I must now suffer the consequences for it, mm. whatever they may be, mm. is an interesting concept. I think it's a very interesting concept. Mm. Do you have any advice I know your son is younger than this, but do you have any advice to mothers of teenage boys? Like, what do you think we should be telling them? How do we how do we bring up the conversations around consent and mm. rape culture? How, how do we do it? I don't have any advice as a mother mm. because I have no idea yeah. what it's like to raise a teenage boy. But as a as a person who, you know, works in this sort of like space and also has a lot of dealings with teenage boys, mainly in that they send me really repulsive 
emails and messages and threats. Do you know how old they are? I would say that they're probably anywhere between the youngest might be 11. Jesus Christ. I mean, that's rare. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that the majority of messages I get now are from teenage boys. So this woman uh, yeah. in Australia just wrote this article recently for a magazine that we have there called Archer Magazine, which is a really progressive um, magazine, you know, that kind of like focuses on queer sexualities and uh, queer life. And um, her article was about how her son found her FetLife profile. And I think he must have been using her computer and FetLife is like a... I was going to say, oh, it's, like a, uh, it's a dating app for people who want to explore their fetishes. Right, yeah. So it's, you know, fairly explicit. Um, but she Toad had... Talks, your mum's... Well, she had, said, <laughs> she had said that since, you know, she was a... She was a, she was a single mum in that she was no longer with the boy's biological parent, but she's married to a woman and she's also in a polyamorous relationship. Mm-hmm. So it, the thing that he was surprised to find out about was her kinks, but also that she was in a polyamorous relationship. So he, he wasn't aware yeah. of that. So she was talking about how, um, through this article, she was talking about how she had always tried to raise him with a really open line of communication where sex was concerned. You know, not to overwhelm him or to frighten him or anything, but mm. always so that he knew that he could speak to her about things. And she she talked about consent a lot. Um, and what she found was really frightening for her was not the way that he responded to this discovery of her profile because he even though he was very uncomfortable with it he knew that he could come and speak to her about it but that the way that she was raising him was so obviously different from the way that his parents his friend's parents were raising them and she's written here I started having conversations with other parents with friends with school mums about sex education and our children 95% of it horrified me one of my best friends who happens to ha- to love sex said no way am I talking about sex with my 11 year old why would I want to ruin her Others have said, you know, they're not young for long enough. Let them be children. And she talked about this idea like amongst parents of protecting and preserving children's innocence without actually acknowledging the fact that they're exposed to really pretty hardcore ideas of sex all the time. Mm-hmm. And she also wrote here, when I asked a soccer mom if she was concerned about what her 14-year-old was looking at each night when he took his phone to bed with him, in brackets, my son had already told me said friend had a serious porn addiction that he indulged each night, close brackets. She laughed her head off and said, God, no, he wouldn't even know what sex is. So I think that stuff is scary when it's not that, you know, I don't know what it's like to raise a teenage boy, but I am scared by how many parents seem to just absent themselves from the responsibilities of talking to their sons about sex and consent and respect and seeing women as humans, seeing if they're attracted to men, seeing men as humans, you know. Just because we find the conversation a bit awks. Yeah, and also because there is, I think, this hangover sense that boys are allowed to forge their own way, Mm. whereas girls need to be taught how to you know, restrain button up their panties, yeah. you know, and, and restrain themselves and how they, how to, re, how to protect themselves and how to like ward off sex at every given yeah. moment. Because of think, course it's never assumed that girls want to have the sex. Children are, we think the children, the children of the future, we <laughs> think that they're naive and it's like, no, the parents, you're fucking naive. Do you know how accessible this hardcore porn? Well, the it, average age for boys to start watching the average age for boys to watch their first instance of hardcore pornography is 11. I've only just listened to The Butterfly Effect by John Ronson and I was like, have you listened to it? No, not yet. It's incredible. Like the pod- it. It's, it's phenomenal. That. It's just so interesting. Like looking into the world of porn and how the mm. um, the creation of Pornhub has had such a massive impact on the entire world. And I was so unaware. Some of it is a bit clutching at straws. I think some of the kind of stretches he makes, I'm like, oh, a bit dramatic. But a lot of them, fascinating. Like the um, the increase in um, uh, premature, like, uh, what's it called? What's it called? Premature ejaculation. Yeah, premature ejaculation. What's it called when men can't get it up? Is that what it is? Oh, um... <laughs> Sorry, <Max. laughs> Um... I just, oh my God, why can't I say Why it? can't I? It's all the Prosecco. It's, it's all what the I'm Prosecco. thinking. Pro, 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 prosecco. Well, like, just say floppy dick. When floppy dick syndrome. Um, floppy dick syndrome has increased. <laughs> <laughs> this is 
such an interesting Why can't statistic. I think of this either? It went from it went flaccid, from like it yeah. was it, yeah, flaccid dick syndrome. It went from <laughs> definitely flaccid dick basically, syndrome. Basically, it's just increased like so massively FTS. since. Oh, stop! Yeah, go on. Stop it with your dirty mouth. Um, the increase of it is like insane in boys from the age 16 to 20 because they're just watching porn and one Mm -hmm. of the examples that he was talking about was that he was on a porn set and there were the porn stars erectile dysfunction erectile dysfunction (laughs) (laughs) fucking hell okay he was on a porn set and it was like a it was a group sex scene there was one woman several men and obviously the porn star the female is like the female the female of the species. The female of the species who was naked. Um, the female porn star was there, obviously, a la nude, and all the men had to go and watch porn in order to get hard. What? And it was like he saw that mm. in front of him, and I'm like, that is fascinating. Wow. That we're reprogramming our brains to yeah. only respond to, to pornography. To porn. Well, it's also very scary. It's so scary. And, and actually, um. I know a lot of young women who will casually just report that the men that they're having sex with struggle, you know, that they you know, they might sure, struggle yeah. to come or they might struggle to like maintain an erection. Mm. Or they it's not even that they want to have sex in all of these like you know varied difficult positions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just Over that they, just they struggle to stay present, you know, yeah, because they're thinking, yeah. yeah. I just thought because that was they so associate fascinating. they associate their sexual response with something very solitary mm-hmm. and immediate and visual, I guess. And I know yeah. porn for performers are obviously they're doing a job; it's their work. Yeah. Um, but it's like in a fant- that's a fantasy world, and they're acting out fantasies of so many people. Yeah. And they can't even. But how is it that? an eleven-year-old meant to distinguish between you know the fantasy versus the reality? It, it is scary. I find it frustrating when you try and kind of like critique aspects of porn mm. and aspects of the pornography industry as being represented or being like uh, like any industry in a capitalist patriarchal world. It's built on making money out of degrading women, mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean that porn itself is those things but the mainstream porn makes money doing those things Mm -hmm. yeah i was and 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 how does a 14 year old or an 11 year old or you know people who are like oh well some people like bdsm it's like yeah they do and that's a totally fine and valid beautiful subculture your kinks are valid but you if you're 14 year old if a 14 year old or a 36 year old is watching a three-minute hardcore porn video where some of those aspects are being incorporated into it but with no context and with no understanding of the subculture, no, like... Or discussion around consent. Discussion or around anything, consent. You know. No communication with the community there mm. and they're just watching that's what sex is. And also that's not very consuming different. a narrative but just the the three yeah. minutes, you there know, of one. hardcore porn in yeah. the middle of a 25-minute video. It's and then you come on her face. Hustlers. <laughs> Hustlers is, you know, speaking of like segueing from porn performance to a movie like Hustlers. Yeah. That, again, prefacing it, I'm not a stripper. I have never been a stripper. I have worked in the sex industry, but not Mm. as a stripper. I loved this movie because it was so told through the perspective of the women. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. And... I don't know enough about it, but from what I from what I observed, it seemed like a lot of it was kind of verbatim, just like with the journalist when she was being interviewed. And I was like, "This is so real," and I can re- I really believe, I really believe that this is so real. Like it was it was no, really good. Uh, upsettingly, for many reasons, the woman who Jennifer Lopez's character was based on yeah. is suing the production company because she she they had approached her and said, "Can we?" base this character on you and she hadn't given her permission and that's such a shame yeah and there's also another story that I read about how the strip club that they filmed it in the women who were dancing in the strip club were basically sent home to not work for a week and they weren't paid or compensated for which is which is fucked it's so fucked and you really would think that they wouldn't have done that I was like really it's amazing you can make a story that seems so good and so well thought out and well like like done with all of the the right angles and intentions and then you're like oh 
But you've told this amazing story about strippers and they're and like now and their survival. Yeah. And they're like money, you know, they're, they're, they're business women. And here you've turned around and you've exploited all of these business women. Yeah, that's not fucking good. I. Great movie. But Jennifer though. Lopez. Slightly, come on. Also, her character was like, I want to be her best friend. Her character was amazing. Her character was beautiful. Sorry, so warm. I didn't love the film. You didn't oh, love it? I didn't, know, I didn't know you didn't see yeah, it. Yeah, I was wait, I was sitting on that. All right, well, it's um, been great, guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go. Should we go? I don't know. It was a bit. I wasn't. What, what didn't you love about it? I was a little bit bored. Oh. Really? I was just a bit bored. Fair enough. Yeah. I have another question for you. <laughs> Why don't you go on Q&A anymore? Oh, uh, I, I don't get asked. Why? Oh, really? I'm pretty sure that they don't ask me because this is my my belief. I've just, look, I've just put tucked my tissue up into my <laughs> jumper arm. Such a mum. Such, such a mum. Did you start me? doing that as soon as you no, I've gave been do, birth? I've done or? that since I was a child, okay. you know, because my mum did it. <laughs> Um, but also, it's a really convenient place to it leave your very, tissues. It is a very, very convenient. Where else are you going to put Unless them? Unless I'm, yeah. um, you could Julian put them Anderson's. in. Sometimes I pop them in my bra as well, along with my bank card and my keys and yep. a few spare coins. Um, so I think that the reason they don't ask me on Q and A anymore, and Q and A uh, for British listeners, Q and A is an Australian current affairs program on the. It's ABC. Our, our version of Question Time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, because I am a an unpredictable guest. What's she gonna do? And What's the most have, unpredictable thing you did on Q and A? I called. So there's a there's a. <laughs> <laughs> this wasn't on Q and A, but this was on another ABC show, and it was live. Yeah. So ABC is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. So basically the BBC, but with way less money. Did you call someone um, a fuckwit? I called Miranda Devine a cunt. Oh, yes, um, I remember. And Mar- Miranda Devine is like our Katie Hopkins. Yeah. She oh. is the worst. We're going to bleep Katie Hopkins' is, name out. She is truly <laughs> a true cunt. Um, and I didn't even really call her a cunt on this ABC show. I just said, I repeated on the <laughs> ABC show that I was on that I had called her a cunt yes. on Twitter. <laughs> and... You know, they they was they had to apologise well, because of course all of these you as a cunt on Twitter. Yeah, all all of these all of these right wing people who are always like just it's just words, it's just words, it's just words. People can't bloody take words anymore. They can't bloody take a joke anymore. Blah blah blah. Whenever anything is said against them, of course everyone has to roll out the red carpet and apologise. So the ABC apologised to Miranda Devine because it's horrendous guest that we'd had on. They you are a nightmare. They didn't call me that, but you know. Um, I think that they just so that there's so that. Are you un- blacklisted by the ABC? I assume so. There's that unpredictability. <laughs> there's also the fact that if they put me on a show, they would just be bombarded with. I mean, they, the ABC really lacks a spine at the moment. I think because they're so concerned about their funding, mm. they're so concerned about pe- appealing to the right wing that they've lost a, a significant amount of bloody courage. So they are concerned that if they put me on the show that they're going to be bombarded with emails, not just from, you know, your average Joe on the street saying, like, why are you putting that bloody man-hater on TV? Don't you know that she said kill all men once on Twitter? Um, <laughs> but also from all of their prominent right-wing commentators that we have in Australia, they will launch, like, a huge mm. thing about it. Mm. Um, I once... Well, I'm about to start the campaign, bring Clementine back. <laughs> yeah, shall we? Because that's the first time I ever was introduced to your work was through your first well, appearance on Q&A. I mean, Q&A. look, to be honest, Q&A doesn't pay its guests. Mm-hmm. It's quite fun going there and, like, drinking in the green room and stuff. But sure. I don't even know if it's worth doing it anymore yeah. because you just get trolled for ages online afterwards. Yeah. People yeah. talk about how ugly and gross you are, which is like a, a normal day for me. But to not even be paid for it. Um, That's really weird. And also you go on and you're guaranteed that, like, the dudes on the panel are going to talk way more than you. Mm. They want to have the readers that you'll bring them, but they don't want to have to deal with the backlash that comes with it. And neither do you, but you do. No, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. To um, wrap up, I just wanted to show you, I don't know if you, you saw our little tribute to the last time that you were on, but we appreciate your attitude and we love that uh, you're going to call someone a cunt. Oh, this is the last I did time see we were, that. That was in I loved that. <laughs> we yeah. were like panicking 
thing that Maz would like walk oh. in. We were like, shit, do it so quickly. We got, we got our tits out in the studio and took a photo of us. <laughs> Uh, bare chested because years ago now was it? Clementine, but did yeah. anyone tell you at the time when you posted that? Did anyone tell you that you had the saggy tits of a pill of a pit bull? <laughs> um, because I only, got I got that at the time, which was nice. Only it. Daisy, but she said it to my face, yeah. and so it was I never do recorded. have I do have quite saggy tits, but you know what? Hashtag saggy boobs matter. Who gives a fuck? Literally, yeah. who cares? Yeah, exactly. But and all we, these men that are like saggy tits, don't fucking pretend that you'd kick them out of bed. Yes. <laughs> On that note, we're kicking you out of bed. You're kicking me out of bed. Yeah. Get all right, out well, of I'm here. taking Thank that cross so on with me. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It is so nice to be here with you in person in this wonderful studio to talk about all things feminist and to be slight, ever so slightly drunk before. <laughs> 11. Oh, that's Woo! so acceptable. On a Friday morning. <laughs> We're in London. Everyone's drunk constantly. I Read boy, Boys London. Will Be Boys. Read Boys Will Be Boys. Clementine, will you sign my book? I would love to sign your book. Yay! Let's do it. Thank okay, you. thank you, everyone. Love ya. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Harness. We're proud supporters of Rafiki Mwemar and the Carly Ryan Foundation. If you'd like to know more about these amazing charities, please visit the show notes. Thanks for listening.